1: Coming to you live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Zane Asher and here is what you need to know. The death toll from the coronavirus rises in China as border restrictions tighten to stop the spread. And the UK grants Huawei a limited role in building its 5G infrastructure despite pleas from President Donald Trump. And on Capitol Hill, it's the final day for opening arguments in the Trump impeachment trial. It is Tuesday and this is First Move. Welcome to First Move. So good to have you with us. It is another tense day when it comes to global markets as investors monitor the progress of the coronavirus. But after two days of sharp selling, U.S. and European stocks are actually stabilizing. You finally see green arrows across your screen. U.S. futures are on track for a solidly higher open. European stocks are higher across the board as well. But investors are still a bit sensitive to the latest coronavirus headlines. But for now, traders may feel that markets have dropped too far too fast that is why we're seeing a bit of an uptick right now the Dow actually suffered its worst day of trading since October on Monday dropping more than one and a half percent it has fallen into the negative territory for 2020 and it has posted losses in five straight sessions the Nasdaq suffered its worst day since August on Monday too we are also seeing some calm return to the U.S. Treasury market 10-year yields tumbled Monday as traders Flock to safe havens like government bonds. But yields are ticking higher today. Safe haven gold is down by about a quarter of one percent right now. Our main driver though today is still of course the coronavirus. Hong Kong is imposing severe restrictions on travel from China as the infection rate on the mainland continues to accelerate. The death toll has risen above 100 people with more than four and a half thousand cases that have been confirmed so far. 60 million people across the country are on lockdown. David Culver is joining us live now from Beijing. So David, I still wanna talk about Wuhan because of course that is the epicenter of this uh, deadly disease. Does Wuhan actually have the healthcare infrastructure it needs to really handle this?
2: It seems Zane, they are being flooded with more than they can handle and proof of that is coming straight from the top president xi jinping himself who just speaking a short time ago according to state media with the world health organization head and said that this epidemic uh is something that he is determined to bring down he's determined to stop it he calls it a demon and he says it will not hide from him he also says he's the one personally giving the orders to these deployments and so to your question as to the resources down there Well, it seems like they need them badly because we know of at least 6,000 medical personnel, military and civilian, talking about doctors and nurses who have been deployed to Hubei province and to the city of Wuhan in particular. And we also know that they're building two hospitals that will hold about 2,000-plus patients. So they're trying to accommodate even more beds. Now, we hear that the city of Wuhan itself has 13,000 beds dedicated to those infected with the virus. The other thing they need, Zane our resources. We're talking about goggles, masks, and even hazmat suits. Those are are crucial right now. And so part of that is coming not only from up production here, they essentially have restarted the factories, if you will, in the midst of a holiday to try to meet that demand, but it's also coming from the outside, including from Japan and South Korea. Interesting here how this is working. Okay. So it's because Japan and South Korea are bringing in planes, that are eventually going to take citizens out of the lockdown zone. So the Japanese citizens who are approved to be on the flight, and likewise the South Koreans, they will get on that plane. But in exchange, uh, at a good will, really, South Korea and Japan leaving behind several masks, uh, as well as the hazmat suits, those things that are are most needed right now. We know a few hours from now, Zane, an American airplane will be leaving, an aircraft uh, carrying... At least 240 Americans, U.S. diplomats, their families, as well as civilians who were allowed to apply for select spots. That's going to leave, head to the west coast of the United States, and they will be in quarantine, those passengers, for up to 14 days, Zane, upon their arrival. We're also hearing about some restrictions travel-wise. Certainly coming out of the territory of Hong Kong, they have put in some very strict travel regulations With regards to those coming from the mainland, particularly from Hubei province, they essentially said if you're from there or if you have traveled there, you cannot enter Hong Kong within two weeks time. Singapore is doing something similar where they say any student or staff member from schools who were in anywhere in mainland China cannot go into those schools for two weeks. An Australian state doing something similar. So we're starting to see these stepped up restrictions coming really worldwide. The U.S., CDC there has said that they're uh, telling folks to reconsider travel to China and telling them quite explicitly, Zane, not to travel to Hubei province.
1: And David, just in terms of healthcare workers, how are they being protected in all of this? Because they are also one of the most vulnerable here.
2: There is a real struggle there with the healthcare workers. We have spoken to at least half a dozen, my team and I here in Beijing, and they are dealing with not only the lack of resources, and there's a dire need for that, and they say that they feel like they're going into battle without armor. And so this um, this you know, explains why now President Xi Jinping is, is pushing forward with these resources and saying that he's deploying them himself and making those orders, um, but also they themselves are in contact with the infected and contracting the illness. In fact, one nurse tells us that at least 12 of her colleagues have contracted the virus. Some of them are intensive care, some of them were sent home with medication, but Zane, either way, they're unable to do their job, which is treating for those who are sick because they themselves have been infected.
3: David
1: Culver line for us there. Thank you so much. Coronavirus fears continue to grip Asian markets Tuesday. South Korean stocks tumbled on their first day of trading uh, this week. Hong Kong markets are scheduled to begin trading again tomorrow following the Lunar New Year holiday. Anna Stewart uh, joins us live now. And Anna, the ones we are really watching closely are Asian travel stocks uh, because they are getting hit hard here.
3: Yeah, they are one of the sectors that are particularly under pressure. But just to give you an idea, we did see the seller continue into the Asian trading day Tuesday. Uh, Of course, the Chinese indexes are largely all closed for the holiday. We did have the KOSPI, South Korea's index opening. Now, that opened 3% down, so it's playing some catch up there. Nikkei down another day, half a percent. That can add to yesterday's 2% drop. And Singapore's index 2 down nearly 2%. I'll bring up those travel stocks. I did want to to show you just how badly some of these are faring. Qantas down 5%. Korean Airlines 6.7%. So some real big hitters there. And this is largely on containment measures. That's what's putting all this downward pressure on these stocks. Factories closed, shops closed, travel restrictions. That doesn't bode well for many of those Asian stocks. And of course, more globally, looking at those that are exposed to China. Now, you did mention Hong Kong. We are expecting Hong Kong stock market to reopen tomorrow, Wednesday. That's in a less than 12 hours' time. However, we do understand that Hong Kong uh, government has told many businesses to close their offices, to have people working from home. It's so unclear whether it will reopen. If it does, I think you can expect to see some really hefty losses again on that index tomorrow. Zane?
1: And oil has also been heavily impacted in all of this, especially just given that China is the largest consumer uh, of energy in the world.
3: It is. And also, oil is such a sentiment trade, isn't it? There's this huge fear, and mining stocks as well, I should say, that if consumption is hit, if uh, if factories are closed, you're going to see much less demand for raw materials for oil. You can see the prices there. We saw bigger losses actually yesterday on the oil markets. Um, Interesting today in Europe. Europe did open higher despite all the big losses yesterday. It was looking more positive. The announcement that Hong Kong is going to have higher travel restrictions between Hong Kong and the Chinese mainland, that has seemingly hit European markets. they paired back the gains they had earlier today. U.S. futures pointing higher, so some positive uh, positivity there. I think it'll be interesting to see what earnings we get out today in the U.S., uh, Apple, Starbucks, also LVMH actually in Europe. And all of these stocks, of course, have exposure to China. So we'll be looking out for any uh, notes on the outlook for Q1, see whether the China exposure is being taken to, into account already. Zane?
1: Right. Anna Stewart, live for us. Thank you so much. Britain has decided to use Huawei's equipment for its 5G network, despite pressure from Washington. The British government says the Chinese telecom giant will be excluded from security critical core areas. The U.S. has asked Britain to ban uh, Huawei from the country's network entirely. Clearly, it has chosen not to go that route. Hades Gold is joining us live now from London. So, Hades, is this basically the U.K. essentially trying to please both sides trying to have its cake and
4: eat it as well it is an interesting middle ground decision for the U.K. to make, but it is the most important country, the most important ally to the United States thus far to not take the U.S.'s advice on Huawei. Now, the U.S. wanted the U.K. to completely ban Huawei from its system, but that is clearly not happening. And it's, I think, also an important marker for where the U.K. stands going forward, especially after Brexit. Where will it stand between Asia and between the United States? So the U.K. government today has decided that Huawei can be a part of its 5G network, but it can only be limited to 35% of that network and will be banned from what it calls core security functions will also be banned from operating in sensitive places like military bases or national security bases or anything like that. So they will be allowed in some sense, but not entirely, not to be able to sort of take over the network. Now keep in mind Huawei technology is already an important part of the 5G and 4G network here in the United Kingdom. So if they were to ban them entirely, they would have had to strip out all of that technology. It's an interesting tug of war though for the United Kingdom between politics, between economics and between national security. Because on the one hand, Boris Johnson has promised that the entire country will have high-speed 5G connectivity by 2025. And Huawei is the leader when it comes to 5G. And they also offer it at a better price than some of their competitors. And and also on the other side, you have the United States, which of course was lobbying very heavily, both privately and publicly on Twitter, for the United Kingdom to not go with this ban. We actually just got a statement from a senior administration official that says that the Trump administration is disappointed in this decision and that there is no safe option for untrusted vendors to control any part of a 5G network. And the Trump administration says that they will continue to try to push other countries to completely ban Huawei. Now Huawei for its part, uh, I'll pull up their statement right now, they says that they are reassured by the UK government's confirmation that we can continue working with our customers to keep the 5G rollout on track. This evidence-based decision will result in a more advanced, more secure and more cost-effective telecoms infrastructure that is fit for the future, gives the UK access to world-leading technology and ensures a competitive market. But the United Kingdom clearly thinks it's found some sort of middle ground. They say that they are assured they can protect themselves against any sort of national security threat that may be posed by China. Now, Huawei has always denied that the Chinese government can have control over them. But there is a law in China that says essentially any Chinese, any Chinese company has to help out the Chinese government if requested by the Chinese. But Huawei says they will never acquiesce to such decisions. They're quite pleased with this. The UK government thinks that this is a proper middle ground they can protect against it. But the real question will be, how will this affect the US relationship? Thus far, Zina, we've seen no tweet yet from President Donald Trump. Alice Gold,
1: thank you so much.
4: These are the stories making headlines around the world. Prince
1: Andrew has provided, quote, zero cooperation with the investigation into alleged sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein. That's according to the U.S. attorney who's in charge of the case. This comes after the prince told the BBC in November that he was willing to help any investigation. New developments in the investigation into Sunday's helicopter crash that killed NBA legend Kobe Bryant and eight others. Uh, Investigators say the helicopter had been granted special permission to operate in foggy conditions near Los Angeles. Uh, And the National Transportation Safety Board says in the last communication with air traffic control, the pilot said he was climbing to avoid a cloud layer. In Washington, President Trump's lawyers are set to resume their opening arguments in his impeachment trial. In their final day of arguments yesterday, in largely ignored disclosures from former White House adviser John Bolton that said the president tied aid to Ukraine to the country's possible investigation of the Bidens. Suzanne Malveaux joins us live now from Capitol Hill. So, uh, Suzanne, just, just more specifically, walk us through how Trump's legal team tried to downplay the John Bolton manuscripts.
5: Sure, Zane. Well, uh, we are just four hours away from the White House defense team, their final chance to make the case that the president should not be removed from office. We are told that they're going to take just two hours to do that before wrapping up the day, and then we might see the next phase of this trial begin in earnest tomorrow with the question, the 16-hour question period. I have to tell you, day two yesterday, I talked with many Democrats, including Senator uh, Kamala Harris, who really thought that the Bolton book, the manuscript, was a game changer. In the time, I also talked with Republicans like, uh, Republican uh, senators like uh, Cornyn, who actually played it down. But behind the scenes, a lot of buzz, a lot of concern. Still a big question, Zane, as to how this is going to impact the trial. President Trump's defense team spending hours avoiding the elephant in the room. Former National Security Advisor John Bolton claims President Trump told him in August the hold on nearly $400 million in military aid to Ukraine was linked to investigations into his political rivals, which undermines a key pillar of the president's impeachment defense.
6: Anyone who spoke with the president said that the president made clear that there was no linkage between security assistance and investigations.
5: But late into the evening, attorney Alan Dershowitz finally addressing the claims made by Bolton.
0: Nothing in the Bolton revelations, even if true, would rise to the level of an abuse of power or an impeachable offense.
5: Democrats need four Republicans to join them in order to subpoena new witnesses like Bolton. GOP sources tell CNN three senators are almost a certainty at this point.
4: I think it's uh, increasingly likely uh, that other Republicans will uh, will join those of us who think we should hear from John Bolton.
5: President Trump's legal team spent Monday focusing on the process and the Bidens, which they say wasn't part of the plan, but the Democrats forced their hand.
7: Hunter Biden's decision to join Burisma raised flags almost immediately. We would prefer not to be talking about this we would prefer not to be discussing this but the house managers have placed this squarely at issue so we must address
5: it a source telling cnn that republican senator patrick toomey resurrected the idea of a possible witness swap but democrats have repeatedly said such a trade say hunter biden for john bolton was off the table Hunter Biden's not on trial.
0: This is clearly an attempt to uh, feed red meat to their base, but also red herrings to take us away from the central issue.
5: This, as new details from Bolton's manuscript could further strengthen the case to call Bolton to testify. The New York Times reports Bolton writes that he privately told Attorney General Barr that he had concerns President Trump was effectively granting personal favors to the autocratic leaders of Turkey and China. Bolton claims Barr replied he was worried that Mr. Trump had created the appearance that he had undue influence over what would typically be independent inquiries. The Justice Department denying the claims in a statement, saying the account as related in the Times grossly mischaracterized what Attorney General Barr and Mr. Bolton discussed. Senator Cornyn and the overwhelming majority of Republicans are telling me that they are not going to make any announcements about witnesses, any decisions around that, until after the process of the White House counsel uh, making their case, the 16 hours of questions and then the four hours of debate. So all eyes say now on the the last two hours of the defense, how are they going to handle the Bolton issue? Uh, Bolton is a good friend to many of the Republican senators. Uh, the question being, will these White House lawyers actually uh, attack? or try to discredit Bolton as the president would prefer. Zayn,
1: Suzanne Malvo, thank you so much. President Trump is set to unveil his long-awaited Middle East peace plan at the White House. He says it can bring peace to the region if the Palestinians go along with it, but they're already rejecting the plan, saying it offers too many concessions to Israel. When President Trump lays out the Middle East plan, CNN will bring it to you uh, live at around 5 p.m. London time. Okay, coming up, we'll have more on how the coronavirus outbreak is impacting the air travel industry when we hear from the CEO of IATA. And in just a few days, Britain will officially, it's finally here, guys, officially leave the European Union, how the world is preparing for that exit. That's next. Welcome back to First Move, coming to you live from the New York Stock Exchange, where it is still looking like a solidly higher open for US stocks. Uh, This Tuesday, Dow futures already pointed higher. Triple digits. Stocks are set for a bounce after two days of sharp losses on coronavirus fears. Tech stocks are on track for the best gains. The US Federal Reserve begins its first policy meeting of the year today. The economic effects of the coronavirus are sure to be a main talk and talking point. For more of the markets, I'm joined now by John Bilton. He's the head of global multi-asset strategy at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Thank you, John, so much for being with us. So, the FOMC meeting mm-hmm. today and tomorrow, discussing balance sheet, short-term interest rates as well. Um, they have intimated that they plan to leave interest rates steady this year, but what are we expecting? Hasn't the global outlook changed somewhat since the beginning of the year?
6: I think that what we've seen is that the initial focus that we'd had at the beginning of the year that was coming from um, the resolution uh, around phase one of the trade talks between the US and China and obviously a year where we'd had a significant monetary policy impulse um, easing across the board. The uh, US, of course, the ECB as well and others uh, getting in on the act has turned to a year where I think investors are quite rightly turning to underlying growth. And while that's perhaps less exciting than a volt fast on monetary policy, ultimately it's earnings that are going to drive returns in our view. And the information so far is relatively good. I think the Fed being on hold, perhaps with a slight dovish asymmetry in certainly their tone, will be something that markets will take comfort from. But I think without doubt, it's actually it's less about the Fed and more about earnings season that that investors are ultimately focused on at the moment because they want to see evidence that the macro data, which is suggesting that uh, the economy is you know, stabilising from a little bit of weakness last year, is actually following through into earnings and ultimately into corporate confidence.
1: Yeah, 2019 was certainly overall for stocks turbulent. Uh, it was lacklustre when it came to earnings. Uh, we've got a very busy earnings week this week. How do you anticipate earnings season for 2020 comparing to that of last year?
6: well i think it's going to be it's going to be night and day uh, last year we got approximately 0% earnings growth yet we saw world equities rally more than 20% across the board and a very, very strong performance in the US. And I think this year um, we're going to be turning it around. It's going to be less about valuations, less about that monetary policy impulse pushing valuations up and much more about looking for those underlying earnings. And the outlook is relatively reasonable. If we look at where we expect growth globally to be, probably roughly at trend around the globe this year, um, gradually improving from current weakness towards a sort of trend level, trend-like level of growth by middle year, what does that translate to? Perhaps around 3% real growth, a couple of percent inflation, add on to that the dividend that one would normally clip from the equity markets, and you're looking at upper single-digit returns without actually expecting the multiples to do anything for you. So already, I think the focus on earnings, the focus on growth is going to be much more palpable this year than it was last year, which was very much about monetary conditions and about multiples.
1: We've already had the phase one of the US-China trade deal um, signed. Obviously, though, there are tariffs that are still in place. How much is the market really itching and how much does the market desperately need that phase two deal signed uh, sooner rather than later?
6: Well, I think the market right now recognizes that the you know, trade deals take a long time, particularly when they're as large, wide and complex as it would be between the US and China. And I think the expectations that we get further rounds of trade negotiation and and deals this year is relatively low. I think instead, it's a question of looking for some level of stability in that regard and recognizing that, you know, globally, we've seen a a, a slowdown in a number of measures, particularly inventories, capital spending, and consumer sentiment. And that all seems to be bottoming some of the key leading indicators, things like DRAM prices, um, semiconductor volumes, these kind of things, which are good leading indicators for the world economy, are actually looking a little bit healthier. We've not yet seen CapEx coming through. It's not necessarily that we need to see a major improvement in, uh, you know, as in another phase of trade negotiation, but simply stability, and that in itself, I think, with a more stable macro outlook, uh, a more reasonable macro outlook, will actually lead to a little bit more confidence and a little bit more earnings growth and activity.
1: Almost like we are running out of time. I wanted to ask you about the coronavirus, because, of course, that is a risk event that the market has not been prepared for at all. But we'll have to leave it uh, for another time. We'll see whether this market is resilient enough to handle those headwinds coming from Asia. Thank you so much, John Bilton from J.P. Morgan Asset Management. you. You are watching First Move. The opening bell is right up after this short break. Don't go away. Welcome back to First Media, everyone. I'm Zane Asher coming to you live from the New York Stock Exchange. Let's take a look and see how the markets are doing. As expected, as I mentioned when I was looking at futures a little bit earlier on the show, we do have a slightly higher open on Wall Street today. The Dow is up about 75 points already right out of the gate. Definitely a sharp turnaround from yesterday where the Dow was down 500 points or so. However, despite the green arrows on your screen, investors do remain deeply concerned about the spread of the coronavirus In Asia, we now know that uh, more than 4,500 cases have been confirmed in mainland China and more than 100 people have died from this disease. That said, global stocks have fallen sharply since late last week. Uh, and stocks may simply have been overdue for a bounce. Investors using the red hours we saw yesterday as a buying opportunity. European stocks, let's take a look here, which have also fallen sharply on virus fears too, are higher across the board as well today. Hong Kong's flagship airline, Cathay Pacific, is cutting the number of flights to and from mainland China by at least 50%. The measure designed to contain the coronavirus will be in place until the end of March. It's just one example of how the outbreak is really hitting the airline industry. For more, I'm joined now by Alexandre de Juniac, CEO of the International Air Transport Association. Mr. de Juniac, thank you so much for being with us. So what type of short-term, at least, disruption is the airline industry bracing for given the rapid spread of
8: this disease. Um, You know the airline industry uh, unfortunately or fortunately uh, has accumulated some experience uh, from previous outbreaks, uh, the MERS, uh, SARS or Ebola and um, so we have um, prepared measures first. Secondly, we follow the recommendations of the World Health Organization, the WHO, or the ICAO, or the Center of Disease Control um, of Atlanta. And up to now, the measures that have been in place are, are, we think, reasonable. They can evolve, but they are reasonable. So there are no restriction for international flights. Uh, from and to China. There are recommendations to implement um, um, a temperature control uh, for uh, exiting China and some uh, also um, temperature control for uh, travelers coming from China that could be extended to other countries if uh, there is a need for that. Um, So currently... Uh, we think that the, um, the the measures that are in place are good and effective and efficient they could evolve, but they are good, effective and efficient to uh, to limit you know, the propagation of the virus
1: so just in terms of how this is impacting airlines overall I mean it's not just the fact that um, there has been a, a virus, there has there's been an outbreak in China. It's also, there have been questions about the delayed response. Who knew what? When? Could certain measures have been implemented sooner? Overall, what kind of response, what kind of improved response is needed from China in order to limit the risks to airlines overall?
8: Uh, first of all, we... we We have to say that the the way the Chinese government, the Chinese authorities are dealing with that uh, issue is uh, uh, very rigorous, they are taking that very seriously, the containment measures looks uh, appropriate, Um, they have been reacting very fast and efficiently. now, from an international uh, perspective, uh, the, we we still uh, closely follow and uh, uh, the the situation, monitor the situation, and follow the recommendation of international organizations. For us, that the that the key element is to have a coordinated uh, approach, uh, following international regulations, international uh, um, uh, authorities' uh, recommendations. That's that the key issues if we want to limit, you know, the evolution of this uh, outbreak.
1: Okay, so just switching now uh, to Boeing, Um, obviously you are head of IATA, so I do have to ask you about about Boeing. Given that there is an expectation that the 737 MAX is going to be recertified by the middle of this year, what needs to happen for there to be much more public confidence and employee confidence in Boeing? How do they restore that?
8: Um, There are two elements there. You know, first of all, um, we have always said that the um, uh, re-entry into service of the 737 has uh, to be uh, uh, done in, um, in a coordinated way uh, between the, author- the certification authorities. So it will be, we, we hope, that it will be a common decision or a common schedule. Uh, between, you know, the, uh, the FAA in the US or EASA in Europe or the Chinese authorities in China, all taking the, the, the same decision at the same time. Because the coordinated approach for certification is a key issue for us. And it, it has been the best guarantee of safety all over the past uh, 60 to 70 years. And it has brought that that industry in this uh, safety situation, which is the best in the world, and so we we um, uh, actively uh, advocate in favour of a coordinated approach. Secondly, uh, it has to be uh, uh, also very transparent, uh, explaining to the public that everything has been done to identify the causes and the problems uh, uh, of uh, of the aircraft, and to implement the right solution and to control and to certify that these solutions are the right ones and, and, and working properly. So um, if it's done uh, in that way, in, in a coordinated manner between the authorities, I think that um, we will see a good entry into service of that aircraft and um, uh, we will restore um, the uh, uh, confidence of the public uh, in, this, uh, in this aircraft, which is, of course, a key issue.
1: Alexandra Juniak, CEO of Vallarta, thank you so much, appreciate that. Coming up here on First Move, as Britain prepares to Brexit, the former government minister joins us to look ahead at the transition period and what's next. Britain is gearing up for Brexit. In just a few days, the country will formally leave the European Union, setting in motion something that started almost four years ago with the referendum. World braces for the break-off. Joining me now to look ahead is Lord Jim O'Neill, a former British Treasury Minister for the Conservative government. He joins us live now from London. Um, So what can we expect from the transition period, do you think, that happens from Friday onwards as the UK and the EU negotiate over a trade deal?
9: So, unfortunately, probably more uncertainty. I mean, Friday really is the end of the beginning, uh, as I'm sure you've discussed and focused on before. Uh, The really challenging parts about trade at least now follows and the UK has somehow got to negotiate uh, a trade deal with the EU Uh, as well as pursuing trade deals with uh, many other places, including the States. And uh, we only have an agreement to do that by the end of this year, which uh, virtually any historical precedent suggests that is close to impossible to doing. So uh, there's going to have to be very clever ways of of at least coming to an interim deal, uh, otherwise the dreaded uh, hard Brexit threat will reappear at some moment.
1: So how much of a mistake was it for Boris Johnson to rule out any kind of extension?
9: So uh, let's see if it remains a permanent position. I mean, he he, he has certainly made it strongly uh, the case that he has no intention of uh, making an extension. Uh, but at the same time, uh, they're, they're creating a lot of excitement about what they're going to do to help our economy, which, importantly, markets have sort of taken on board a little bit. Uh, and uh, at some point, the two have got to square together. So my, my own hunch is that they will end up with a very sort of loose outline framework for a deal with the EU that actually will be uh, an extension to the transition period in anything other than word. Uh, otherwise they, he will end up uh, asking for a formal extension but the idea that you're going to be able to fully renegotiate for all different sectors uh... something to compensate for what the uk is leaving is just not practical in my view
1: so how much pressure there is there on businesses during this transition period which obviously as you talk about has so much uncertainty for companies to really analyze their supply chains, analyze costs, think yeah. about potentially relocating certain operations. What does this mean for businesses?
9: So I think it really depends on uh, the degree of competitiveness of the individual business. Uh, for the auto industry, it's uh, it's close to being a nightmare given uh, the fine pr- uh, price margins and the important sort of a global assembly point the UK has successfully played the past 40 years. But you can see the fallout of that in advance of uh, this week. Uh, I think yesterday we had some data about the weakest UK auto production uh, since 2008. So a lot of those companies are already making decisions. But at the other extreme uh, some, some of the few uh, really luxury goods companies, uh, uh, for example, uh, some of the, the high-end uh, clothing or, or, or luxury goods firms that sell into the likes of China and beyond, they, they probably don't have to worry as much, although it's an issue for everybody. Um, uh, that's, that's just in terms of how to uh, approach the pricing issue. Then, of course, it's the whole regulatory regime that comes with it too. So uh, this is partly why the UK economy is grown probably half its potential the past three years because no real big businesses, or for that matter small one, either want to or know how to invest with this uncertainty uh, persisting.
1: Uh, I want to pivot now to what made headlines just a few hours ago, and that is the UK's decision to allow Huawei a limited role in building out its 5G networks. I just want to get your take on that decision because a lot of people are saying it seems as though the UK is sort of trying to have its cake and eat it and trying to please both China and the US as it negotiates these trade deals after leaving the
9: EU. So, so here I'd be uh, a lot more sympathetic to the government. I, I think the UK uh, is trying to have its cake and eat it, but it's trying to do what's sensible for the UK. Uh, as the UK develops uh, a a post-Brexit global Britain narrative, you know, we we shouldn't uh, be overly pressurised by anybody, uh, whether it's the US or anybody else. And we need to do what what is in the strategic, commercial and otherwise interests of the UK. And uh, we've had plenty of security experts, which, according to my knowledge, uh, is regarded by uh, US intelligence as being at least as good as the US if not better, saying that we can do as the UK has now publicly indicated it's going to do so why should we uh, just bow to pressure on the US about this issue uh, what you know because it it's probably because of US uh, own tactical or strategic uh, uh, businesses or plans with China and, and they perhaps want us to be part of it but the UK has to explore its future, independently uh, with the U.S. as it does with China. And I I think, however it seems, this is the right decision, in my view.
1: All right, uh, Lord Jim O'Neill, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Lord Jim O'Neill, former British Treasury Minister, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. All right, now to West Africa. In Ghana, one academy is on a mission to spread interest in robotics and science amongst the youth. Julia Chasley has that story. (laughs)
7: Ghana's capital city of Accra is home to the Ghana Robotics Academy Foundation, which aims to bridge the gap between scientific theory and practice for children of all ages.
2: We have built a robot, a robot that is designed to pick up items and then to navigate through lines.
7: Led by Yao Akraku excellent. The Academy has taught over 7,000 students how to code using Lego Robotics as part of their robotics-inspired science education program,
10: RISE. The Ghana Robotics Academy Foundation is an organization set up to give young people opportunities so they they can become problem solvers. The 2019 RoboFest World Championship was won by the Methodist Girls Senior High School. We are very happy. I mean, it just put us in the spotlight all over the world. Since the All team's triumphant win,
7: Ghana's Ministry of Education has announced that robotics will soon be taught from
10: the basic level of education in schools. We should see robotics introduced at least at the junior high level and the senior high level, and that will be very, very good. The Academy's founder, Dr Ashite Trebiolenu, is a
7: robotics engineer for NASA, currently leading a mission to discover the makeup of Mars. Hoping to inspire children, he set up the school in 2011 in his home city of Accra. I'm
8: strong believer in what we call STEM education, science, technology, engineering and math. And I I personally believe that every kid has the capability to do science.
7: Thanks to the skills acquired at the academy, many of their alumni are now working professionally in aerospace, mechanical
10: and electronic fields. I'm happy to report that some of our young people through hard work by the team that I work with and the kids' own hard work have gained admission into top universities around the world. And I think that if we keep at this, with the numbers that you have seen, it can only multiply, and then we can begin to solve the problems that have remained unsolved for so, so, so long. I think Ghana is in pole position to be a leader in this space. There's no question about that.
1: You are watching First Move. We'll be right back.